A few years ago, uh, the Sondergeld family went with the extended Sondergeld family, some of my sisters and their families, to Wyvernhoe Dam. And uh, we're at Wyvernhoe Dam. We thought it'd be really cool. We'll all get together at Wyvernhoe Dam. We'll have a picnic. And that's what we did. And there's this section in the middle uh, of the, uh, the, the kind of the driveway at Wyvernhoe Dam where w- there was all these uh, picnic tables and picnic areas. And this really interesting thing happened with one of my sons. He went off to the toilet. And I went with him because he was quite young. And he came back from the toilet and he walked into, because the picnic areas looked pretty much identical, and there was another group that was kind of demographically, was kind of very similar to our group. And he walked right into the middle of this other group thinking that it was his family, right? Now, that's funny, right, on one level. But you know what happened is the people in that group looked and they watched him as he realised he was in the wrong place and then they laughed at him. All right, and I showed this particular son of mine. I'm not going to tell you who it is, for because I don't want to uncover his shame. All right, that he got something wrong. But um, he, um, he he has a really keen sense of shame, and you know, on that day he lost it. All right, and, and part of that I think is because all of a sudden I'm in a foreign place, and I thought I was in a different place, and then people have laughed at me. And so there's a couple of things that have actually happened that have caused him to feel like an outcast and someone that doesn't belong. And that hurts very, very deeply. And that's what I've been talking about the last couple of weeks about shame is that's kind of how shame works. It's a sense of being an outcast. It's a sense of being associated with people that make you unclean. It's a sense that I've done something that's actually made me unclean. And it's a really central human experience. So what I want to finish on in this series is uh, the third part of it is called Driven by Shame to Jesus. Shame drives people to do many, many things. And I'm sure that you'll find as we go through today that you'll see some of the mechanisms in yourself that shame drives us to. The sad thing about it is that God has a remedy for shame and we tend to default to the mechanisms rather than default to going to him and the remedy that he wants to offer. So uh, what I want to start with today, and we read this last week, I want to to start with the story from Genesis chapter 3, which is where the fall of mankind actually happens. Fascinating, fascinating passage. I remember uh, hearing from someone a little while ago, someone in the project here, who said, I can't believe that you can get so much stuff out of Genesis chapter 3. That would be my feeling. I mean, as a young kid, I was pretty familiar with it. You read it, you read it, you know it, you think you know it, and then you realise there's a whole bunch more facets to it. And hopefully today... Uh, you'll see some of those. So if you've got your uh, Bible there with you, it'll be good for you to open it up to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 6, which is after the, uh, the devil has done his dastardly work and persuaded uh, Adam and Eve that God's not who they originally thought he was, that he's probably holding out on them, and that they probably should do what they think is the best thing to do, not what he thinks is the best. Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
it's, it's an ironic question in one sense, isn't it? Because God knows where Adam and Eve are, but probably the people who don't know where they are is Adam and Eve, all right? They're the ones that are in that point of confusion. And I think, I think God mercifully asks us that, that question a lot of the times through our lives, doesn't he? Just say, well, where are you? You just go, well, he knows where I am, but I, I haven't got a clue. I'm, I'm lost. And in a sense, Adam and Eve were lost. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Out of Genesis chapter 3, I think we can actually see five ways that people are driven by shame. And this is what I want to cover today. The first thing is that shame isolates people. Second thing is that sin and shame distort our view of God. The third thing is that shame leads people to hide. The fourth thing is that shame leads people to play the victim. And the fifth one is what I call shame brandy. And that's not the drink, by the way. Some of you are going, oh, cool, can we play that later? So let me start with this one. Shame isolates. Genesis 3, 7 to 8. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. You see, the interesting thing about shame is what it actually does is it isolates people from God and isolates them from each other. Adam and Eve had the fig leaves to stop each other from seeing each other and they were hiding in the bushes, hopefully thinking that God wasn't going to be able to see them. Shame isolates people and it makes them lonely. You would think that people with shame would be keen to actually come out and not hide away. But the interesting thing is that they don't because shame actually becomes a home to them. It kind of becomes a home on a deserted island. I can do this on my own. That doesn't apply to me. It's like what actually happens is we shift ourselves away from other people and make ourselves a special category and lock ourselves up in a prison. There's a lot of talk in, uh, in psychological and uh, counselling circles about uh, self-talk. Now self-talk, one, one uh, way they used to explain self-talk is they say people talk to themselves all the time. And one of the examples I've heard is it's like you've got ticker tape and the ticker tape is like the news feed that's going on on the bottom of the TV screen while the picture's on it. And people have a news feed that's just kind of continuously going on and on and on where they're actually having this conversation with themselves. But the interesting thing about self-talk is self-talk generally, and especially the way that psychology and counselling kind of fleshes it out, it generally teaches people to have a a conversation that's curved in on yourself and to correct yourself. And you can see how someone with shame would actually be encouraged to actually stay focused on themselves. I mean, God calls people to speak outwards and to talk to him, to talk to others and to talk to him. But what shame tends to do is it tends to isolate people and people can get very badly stuck in the internal world of the internal conversations that they have going through their heads. And the really dangerous thing about the internal conversations that people have is that people reinterpret what they hear. People who really struggle with shame 
don't, most of the time don't hear what you say to them. They reinterpret most things that actually get said to them. And what we actually need is we actually need God to break through into our conversation we're having in our heads, pull us outwards, and we need to tell other people about the struggles that we have and, and get them to help us to see the lies that we actually believe and the lies that we actually tell ourselves. And you better believe probably every single one of us in this room tell lies to ourselves and we believe them. The big problem with this whole self-talk thing and, and how shame kind of hijacks it is this whole issue of reinterpretation. What tends to happen is people will say a positive thing and we'll reverse it and turn it into a negative thing that we believe about ourselves. The interesting thing is, if someone actually says something negative to you, you don't reverse that, all right? Shame kind of only reverses the positive stuff. So what you end up with is a whole bunch of negative stuff that comes into your head. Let me give you some examples. Someone says, I love you, and you hear, you only say that you love me because you have to. I'm worthless. Someone says, you look nice today, and you think, not true, I'm ugly. Someone says, God loves you, and you hear, God loves everyone but me. God says he wants you to draw near to him. You hear, I need to fix stuff up to draw near. Jesus says, I love you, and you say, I'm not lovable. You see, part of what's actually going, going on here, and it's a, it's a tough truth to kind of come, come to grips with, is there's a sense in which when we reinterpret things, what we're actually doing is we're um, mishearing God and we're proclaiming our own independence to actually identify ourselves. This is something that happens quite often for people that struggle with negative thoughts, especially if they're Christians, is they have these negative thoughts about them and they prefer to think those thoughts and listen to those thoughts over the things that God says about them. And part of this, the reason why we isolate, is because it's actually, it appears too risky to open up to others because you might get hurt. But what we actually realise is that when you don't open up to others and you isolate yourself, you actually hurt yourself. To some extent, in a different way, you become some kind of self-harmer. That's what isolating yourself from others does. You see, there's no way out of shame when you're in isolation. And the irony of uh, people who uh, isolate themselves because of shame is that they, they're very, very happy to help other people get free from their cell of shame, but they won't accept it for themselves. Have you ever known anyone like that? Maybe you've been like that. You might say to me, yeah, no, but Peter, it's actually other people that have caused my shame. But I would ask you, how are you going with handling it? Are you really dealing with it? Or are you just getting used to it? Becoming accustomed to it and learning to live with it? You see, part of the problem with shame is that shame isn't about just fixing negative thoughts. And I don't know whether you've ever noticed this, but if you actually go up to someone who's thinking negative thoughts about them, your instinctive reaction is they need some encouragement but it doesn't work have you ever noticed that it doesn't actually work and the reason why is because the problem with someone who's got an intense sense of shame is not that they've actually got a malfunctioning negative thought their problem is a problem of orientation so what you actually need to do and i don't have time to go into it today fully but what you really need to do is help the person to reorient to god 
all right? They're probably very well oriented to themselves. And this kind of thing becomes really problematic because we actually say things like this or we think things like this. We think that other people ought to mind their own business. And there's just parts of people's lives that are personal and they're private. And this often happens, and I think this happens quite a bit in the church, is that that's not for public consumption. That's not to go out publicly. And there's a sense in shame in which it wouldn't be right for us to have, get a line-up of people up here and say, you've got to tell everyone your deepest, darkest, dirtiest secrets. But when we go to the other extreme and we say, no one needs to know about this, this is my business, this is my issue and it's not for you to get involved with, we actually run into a bit of a problem because biblically the idea is that God's going to send a lot of his rescue through other people in the church. It would be nice if you could just pray to God and just say, can you just fix my shame up and something miraculous actually happen. But God's miraculous healing and change actually comes through other people. And if you say things like, it's a personal, private affair. I don't need to talk about it. You don't have the right to ask about it. No one can talk to me about it. You know what it does? Is it makes you untouchable. And it probably isolates you and puts you in a cell. So let me ask you, what stuff do you think you can work out yourself? A large part of dealing with shame is being prepared to bring it out in the open. Now, I'm not talking about in front of 100 people. It's just bringing it out. And we've got great comfort. Do you know why? You don't need to isolate yourself because Jesus was isolated. John chapter 19 talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. Listen to this. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, dot, dot, dot. How many people are at the cross with Jesus? that he knows probably three I mean he fed 5,000 he fed 4,000 he had the triumphal entry there were people all over the place that liked him and all of a sudden all he's left with is two women and the disciple John that's it he he doesn't even have uh, Peter James and John who were kind of his inner circle he's got one out of his inner circle one out of his 12 and you know what Jesus was isolated so that you wouldn't be. John chapter 1 verse 11 to 12 says this, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He's an outcast to his own people. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, what? (coughs) Children of God. Do you see that? This is great comfort. In your shame, the things that you struggle with, The great comfort to you is that someone's actually gone and actually got completely isolated. And in the end on the cross, you hear Jesus cry out, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? He becomes completely isolated so we don't have to be. Amen? Number two, sin and shame distort our view of God. Genesis 3, 1 to 4. He said to the woman, the devil... Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You'll not 
surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. All right. The really interesting thing about Eve here is that Eve has probably lost the plot before she eats the fruit. How do I know that? I know that because if you actually look here, Eve says that God said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God didn't say anything about not touching. Now, would it be a good thing to hang a tire swing in that tree? Probably not, right? But God didn't say anything about touching it, okay? He just said, I don't want you to eat from it. Which is kind of, whenever someone makes the rule worse than what the original one was, they've obviously imported some doubts about the person's character who made the rule in the first place. And that's what you've actually got going on here. And the interesting thing about people is that people, all of us here, have got a clash between what we say we believe and what we functionally do believe. And I would submit to you today that you don't actually believe anything that you don't do. All right? The only things that you actually believe are actually the things that you do. So I think it's probably a false dichotomy. Like I could say, you've got your, your beliefs and then your functional beliefs. I don't think there's any other beliefs than functional beliefs, all right? They're the things that you actually believe. And what you can see from Adam and Eve here is that their actions tell you that they don't see God's character clearly anymore, both at a sin and a temptation level, but also at a shame level. Let me give you a few primers to get you started on this. When you do wrong things in private that you would never do in public, you actually believe that God can't see you when you hide. When you feel like you have to be nearly perfect before you can come to him, you actually believe he won't forgive and accept you until you've changed yourself. When you worry about the future, you probably don't believe that God's good and in control of the future those functional beliefs start to get, start to dictate things and dictate the way that you actually act. When you look at Adam and Eve here, I mean, it's an interesting thing that they hide in the bush. Now, you'd look at them and you just go, I mean, you could have a conversation maybe with Adam and Eve and just go, like, seriously, do you think if God made the bush, maybe you could see through it? <laughs> Absolutely, right? But the interesting thing is they hide in the bush and what does that say? That it says to them, this thing's actually going to give me some protection because God can't see me in here. All right? Now, it's ludicrous. It's, it's ridiculous. It's in, in a sense, it's insane. It's totally irrational. But the truth is, if we actually had long enough and we're all honest enough, you could actually go through and it wouldn't take you long to find some functional beliefs that are irrational. All right? And I'm not saying that to put you down. I'm saying it because God's actually far, far, far better than what you think far better and your view of God is actually central to how you relate to God all right which is why you need to constantly refresh yourself with who God is which is why you're not going to go to heaven just because you do a quiet time and sit down and read the Bible and pray every day but you actually might be totally changed by that and totally refreshed because what tends to happen is our view of God gets warped and twisted I think our biggest problem is that we underestimate God's goodness toward us. I think that's our biggest problem. 
Because we choose to believe what we think about him rather than what he tells you about what he's like. And we get disillusioned sometimes, don't we? Because we wanted a particular outcome and he didn't bring it. And we think, oh, maybe he's not the God that I thought he was. And I would submit to you today that maybe he's not. Maybe he's actually far better than what you thought he was. See, one of the things that happened, I believe, with uh, humans is that God created us in his image and we returned the favour. Most of the time, I think we're actually remoulding God back into our image instead of letting him be who he is. We depend upon people being lovable and so we assume that that's how God operates. I mean, it's a fascinating thing, especially when it comes to shame, is that we think that God would not like us because if we were him, we wouldn't like us because we're not that lovable. And and we completely forget that God doesn't love because someone's lovable. God loves because he loves. There's nothing in us that inspires his love toward us other than the fact that he loves us, which is not in us. One of the interesting mechanisms that actually happens, I was reading uh, Matthew chapter 7 yesterday, You know where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Now, you know what's really interesting about it? I was just thinking about this yesterday and the scripture's not saying this. So don't, you say, heretic Sondergill, right? Because the scripture's not, it's not, right? I'm just, I'll be upfront about it. But I was thinking about this yesterday. Have you ever noticed with people, when they're really judgmental of someone else, that judgmentalism ends up putting them in a cell themselves and the weird thing is, because at some level what people get is they, they get this self-deception that goes on where they can't, they don't see themselves clearly. But at the same time, I think there can just be this real mechanism like what you criticise about someone else becomes the same standard that you criticise yourself on, whether you're conscious of it or not, and you can kind of get locked in a cell. Let me give you uh, an example. I've been, uh, I said this in community group last week, so here you go, Sondergeld's dirty washing on the line, okay? My, uh, I've been quite critical internally and judgmental of my old man's preaching at times because he gets words wrong, right? And he says the wrong word. I mean, it's been an ongoing family joke that he can't s- say the word statistics. See, I almost stuffed it up myself. <laughs> <laughs> my mum's not been able to say stereo, it's always stereo. I'm just going, I don't know what that is. You're supposed to grab it and take it in the car or something. I don't know. But you know what happened last week is uh, I actually, you probably noticed, I actually got a whole bunch of words wrong last week and I did exactly the same thing that my dad did. That he does sometimes, you know. Now I can tell you, you know, I can say, oh, it's poor old Sondergeld. He only really gets his words wrong when he's really tired and he's a poor victim or whatever. I could go on with all that kind of crap, right? But I'm not going to go on with that kind of crap because... What actually happens is I actually have got this judgmentalism that goes on inside of me toward my dad, which is not right, and then that becomes the, my own cell that I live in. And so when I fail my own standards, I feel like I'm in a place that I can't actually get out of. Does that make sense? And I actually think that happens way, way, way more than what we think. So when Jesus says the same standard that you judge others, you'll be judged by, I think he's talking about in reality, but I also think that that kind of mechanism actually happens inside of us as well. And we get locked in a corner. Some of the people who have the greatest need for liberation from shame won't allow it because they're so judgmental of other people. 
They actually become God over other people's lives and they become God over their own lives. They pronounce the judgment and the punishment and the truth is that they need to repent of their judgmentalism and the godlike status that they have in their own life and in others. You see, sin says God's holding out on me, that he's withholding something good, that life's not abundant with him, that he's a liar. But when we actually hide from God and when we actually experience shame, one of the things that changes about God's character is we start to say to God, you're not trustworthy. You don't mean what you say. I don't believe that you really actually want to cover me. You're not who you say you are. You say you're going to cover me, but I think it'll just end up with me being exposed. You aren't powerful enough to deal with my shame. Jesus' death was not enough for my shame. And this is the interesting thing about shame is that shame can feel sovereign. It, It can feel like there's a sense in which sometimes people can just go, the shame... And, and, the, and the filth that I actually feel is more powerful than anything else. It's actually more powerful than God and it doesn't apply to me. The death of Jesus on the cross just doesn't apply to me anymore. You see, shame warps God's character and it says, you're not safe, God. I'm safer on my own, in my own little cell of shame. Mike Wilkerson in his book, uh, Redemption, makes this comment. We forget who God is and we forget who we are to him. You can meditate on that one for a while. When you get in a situation where it's really difficult, who is God to you at that moment? Is he your father? Is he the one that loves you? Is he the one that's there? Is he the one that knows how many hairs are on your head? Without needing to count. Is he the one that keeps tabs on you? Is he the the one that knows when a sparrow jumps down onto the ground or a sparrow dies? Most of the time when God, when we get isolated from God, we're not thinking those things about God. We're thinking he's some kind of drill sergeant or he's going to expose me or he's just going to hurt me. And then the other one is uh, we forget who we are to him. I mean, you can think about that one for a while. That would be an interesting question for you to ask each other at the end of church today. Who do you think you are to God? What are God's thoughts about you? Interesting questions. Well, you know what the good news is? The good news is this. Jesus never, ever had a warped view of his father's character. In Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says this, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus is facing the cross. He's under intense pressure. He's under more pressure than any of us have ever experienced. And there's a huge amount of pressure that might cause his view of God's character, his father's character to come into question. Is this really what you want? But you know what actually happens with Jesus? Is he stays true and he holds on and he stays strong. And he says, I trust you. If this is the path that I have to go, I trust you. Jesus saw his father's character clearly so that we can get to God. 1 Peter 3 verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to to God. Do you see this? This mechanism of shame 
that would twist God's character. Jesus nailed it and he invites us on the basis of uh, him nailing it and, and following his father and being obedient to his father to, uh, to come and join us with him. Number three, shame leads people to hide. Genesis 3 verse uh, 7 uh, says this, Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I've talked about this already quite a bit in the shame series, but I want to spend a little bit more time on this. And one of the areas I want to spend a little bit of time on is the area of resourcefulness. Resourcefulness is a good thing, isn't it? Being able to pull things together, organise things, uh, being able to manage. Can you manage? I mean, the resourceful people tend to look at people who are not resourceful, the needy, those kind of needy people, and, and they kind of go, I'm glad I'm not like them. All right? And, and maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's good that you're not. But I just want to suggest to you today that resourcefulness can be a real curse. Because you know why? Because we can hide in resourcefulness. Because we can pull our lives together enough to limp along well enough in shame. We don't tend to say anything at all. Uh, we can just kind of hide in that. And so I want to just go on a little riff here about uh, ways that we can hide and uh, see if it, and you can identify with any of this. Sometimes people say things like this to hide, don't they? They say, everybody else knows more than me. So you don't give your opinion. You don't contribute because of shame. Maybe you don't say anything at all. I'm just not going to open my mouth. And then sometimes maybe you've been in a group, a new group. I mean, I, I, I have a, a significant amount of compassion for high school students because I think it's just a real pressure cooker environment. And I think what we see with shows like Big Brother and reality TV shows is if you put adults in a situation that's like the pressure cooker of a high school, they're not that much different to adolescents, all right? The truth is that we tend to be able to separate from the people we don't like and we gather the people around us that we do like and we're able to be not uh, struggling as much as maybe we did in high school. But what happens sometimes when you get into a new group of people and there's bravado and people are jockeying for positions? Do you join in the game or not? There's a sense in which you can't just be because you have to prove who you are all the time. I wonder how you go with when you introduce yourself. It's an interesting question. I think Diff uh, talked about it at his uh, community group in the last week. Uh, how would you describe yourself? If you had to say three words about who you are, how do you describe yourself? Is, is your job who you are? I mean, there's so many kind of uh, things that we can kind of pull in there to be identifiers that we can hide in. And it becomes particularly dif difficult when you're in a profession where you need people to like you. True? I mean, if I, if I was just an absolutely abhorrent, you know, people were vomiting in the aisles because of the way I was preaching, right? The project's actually not going to go very well. True? At that point, you'd say, if 35 people are vomiting in vomit bags, you'd just go, this is not a good sermon. <laughs> All right? Wouldn't you? And it's a bit like I was talking about that uh, shock, jock, shock jock from the States, uh, Howard Stern, you know. Does he need people on his radio show to like him? Yeah, he does. Otherwise, he doesn't have a job. Do If you're a teacher, do you need people to actually like you? Well, yeah, you kind of do, all right? If they all hate you, they're not going to learn from you and it's going to be a disaster. And you can really hide... In your profession, 
you can hide behind the opinions of others and you can end up in the fear of manland like I talked about last week. And then you can get in really, you know, sometimes you can get in, some of you have been in churches where there's a real vibe and the Holy Spirit's really speaking to a bunch of people and it's really interesting. And then it becomes the place where people hide is like, who's heard from God recently? You know, who's got the latest word on that one? And what about this one? If you're a parent, you can hide behind the success or the failure of your children, can't you? You know, I mean, someone told me recently that down in Brisbane, uh, under 12s junior rugby league games aren't allowed to start until there's an off-duty police officer at the ground, right? Now, I haven't verified that, but the person I knew seemed to know it pretty well and I trust them with it. But why is that? Well, I think sometimes parents just want to live out the covering of their shame through their own children, true? It's like, I want them to be good at what I wasn't good at. I want them to play for the Lions or the Wallabies or the Kangaroos or whatever. I want them to play for that because ultimately what that's going to do is that's going to make me feel like I'm something when I'm nothing or I feel like I'm nothing, I should say. None of us have done that, but I'm sure you've heard about people who've done it. (laughs) Sometimes people actually change their theological beliefs so they've got somewhere to hide. So I've been in uh, circles, and I'm sure some of you probably have been in circles, where people go, well, I've got nothing from God, so I don't actually believe that spiritual gifts exist anymore, the charismatic ones, so we're just going to... I don't think that's happening anymore because I never get anything from God on that, and God hasn't given me anything special. You see, we act like we're strong sometimes, don't we? We act like we have everything under control. We act like we're not broken and we don't need healing. People ask us how we're going, we say... I'm great, thanks. All right? We put our party face on or whatever and we just kind of put a nice smile on and we're not doing that great. Now, the interesting thing is, does someone really want to know how you're really doing when they say, how you doing? <laughs> well, probably not most of the time, right? So you just go, well, my life sucks, right? And I just got divorced on the weekend and just go, oh, hang on, man, hang on. I've got to go somewhere in five minutes, so if you could wrap it up, that'd be good. We build reputations that we're happy people and we don't like to tarnish them by admitting to struggle. We don't like to admit feeling vulnerable by admitting habitual sin. Another thing that people do is uh, people can, with habitual sin, the really interesting thing about this, and it's a bit of a slippery kind of deal, right? Because I can say to you, people don't don't want to admit habitual sins, but there's times where people admit habitual sins and they're way too open about it and they find a whole bunch of other people who've got the same problem, and then they hide in it. And this is the big problem with accountability groups, in my view. Okay? Uh, groups ought not to be about people just going and saying, here's the thing that I'm getting wrong, and everyone kind of giving them an emotional cuddle. All right? Just go, oh, I have that problem too. And it's almost like sometimes accountability groups, I mean, they can be run well, so don't, don't take me wrongly on that, but sometimes accountability groups can be like a group hug for someone who's sinning, and There's not a really strong impulse for change in those kind of groups. Allender and Longman make this comment about shame. They say, shame is rooted in our inherent preference to trust false gods rather than depend on God for each and every moment of our existence. Shame is not primarily an experience of feeling bad or deficient as it is the exposure of foolish trust in a God who is not God. Shame exposes 
what we worship. So if you put your hope in your willpower to stop your habitual sinning or in your track record to keep distance between you and your shameful past, you'll be put to shame the moment you stumble and those false hopes actually fail you. If your hope lies in your ability to mask your wounds by acting strong in a constant affirmation of another to make you feel worthy or in your vigilance to avoid being harmed again, you'll inevitably be put to shame because you're not strong enough to save yourself. No one can ultimately secure your identity against your own deep doubts. You'll never have a risk-free life as long as you live in a fallen world. The contrast with Christ is this. Jesus was publicly ridiculed, so he didn't hide. Mark 15, 16 to 18. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. As far as we know, that's about 600 soldiers. They clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And then when he gets crucified in Mark 15, those who passed by derided Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And then, so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the cross, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You see that you don't need to hide now. The one that never needed to hide, the one that never had any shame of his own, came out publicly and was shamed. He was mocked. And he was beaten and he was flogged publicly in lots of people. And the whole deal of a Roman crucifixion is that we're going to put someone up. And uh, as far as my information goes on the crucifixion is people were crucified. So they're not in the typical way that we see someone being way, way, way up high, but they're crucified normally at eye level. And so you can imagine it. You can imagine the people walking past, making jokes about him and poking fun at him. And he did that so that you don't have to hide anymore. You don't, have, you don't have to hide. It's okay to come out. It's, and you know, it's almost... You know, you watch movies and some big tragic event kind of happens, some cataclysmic event, and then at some point in time, someone kind of sticks their head out and they go, is it safe to come out now? This is kind of what it's like with Jesus dying on the cross, right? He, he goes in and he takes it all and we get to stick our heads out and just go, is it okay to come out? And you know what the answer is? Yes, it is. It's okay to come out. You can come out. Number four, shame leads people to play the victim. This is Adam. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Poor Adam. (laughs) All right? Is there any women here that just really want to have a bit of a crack at Adam and just go, don't be so pathetic. Well, this is what people do quite often, I think, with shame, is they play the victim. I'm so busy. It was their fault. It wasn't my day. 
That was my line. I mean, my dad and I, there's way too much feeling in our tennis games. All right? And the only time I ever lost was when it wasn't my day. All right? Or it was windy. Really? I mean, I'm just a victim here, right? I actually would have beat him. If it wasn't windy and it was my day, I would have won. Guess what has already happened to me today? Have you ever heard people say that at the start of a day? It's like, the whole rest of the day, it's just going to be crap, right? There's no actual doubt about it. It's just, it started that way. It's not going to be my day. And... Must be the punctuation, wasn't it? <laughs> Here's the interesting thing. You could well have been the victim. But you know what's really interesting? There's been a push um, in secular kind of psychology and counselling over time to talk about sexual abuse, um, people recovering from sexual abuse as, uh, as people who... Um, have beat it. They're the survivors of sexual abuse. But you know the interesting thing about that? They're still identified by what happened to them. You see, God actually aims far higher than survivors. All right? God's aims for you are not just to get you to the point where you cope. All right? Biblically, coping, the word cope is a four-letter word, right? Because God's not interested ultimately in coping. He's interested in people coping, don't get me wrong, but he's not interested in that as an end state. He's he's after far, far more than that. And there's a sense in which, with people who struggle with these kind of things, it may be that um, they didn't actually lead, it wasn't their actions that, that led them to the state that they find themselves in, but my question would be, what keeps you there? Because often what happens is victim becomes my identity. I was behind the eight ball when I started. It's all right for you. You don't, get to, you don't have to live in my hell. You don't have to work at my job. Sometimes uh, we use things to justify our parenting too, right? So we've got pressures and we go, well, if you had to live my life, you'd parent like I do too. And you know what that is? That's a way for people to play the victim to cover shame. Sometimes people say things like this. They just say, uh, well, that's just what I'm doing at the moment. It's not actually permanent. All right? That's just, that's just how I'm handling things at the moment. Sometimes people say things like this. They say, my children actually justify the way that I parent. All right? Have you heard this one? Uh, you, they haven't got my kid. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? If they had my kids, they'd be parenting the same as me. If you had my kids, you'd act differently. Then I was talking to uh, a lady who's a little older than me and she said one of the classic lines and some of uh, you ladies who are older than me might recognise this one. I've not really heard it, but she said one of the classic lines uh, that women have used to play the victim and to cover shame is to say, oh, my husband wouldn't let me do that. Now, I don't understand that one because I'm not married to a husband. (laughs) And I'm not older. Anyway. The cool thing about this, when you think about Jesus, is Jesus was actually victimised. We play the victim, he got victimised. Listen to this, this is uh, 1 Peter 2, 22, 24 and 25. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
by his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but, you've, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see that? It's okay to stick your head out. The, the coast is clear now. You can come out. Because what actually happened is you were going to be the recipient of some of the, uh, of God's judgment. You, you were quite rightly, you were entitled to be a victim and you were going to be a victim. But what actually happened is someone came forward to be a victim who wasn't a victim. You don't have to play the victim anymore because there's been one victim and you only needed one good victim to stand in your stead, true? And now it's okay to come out. You don't have to play the victim anymore. You can come out. Here's the last one. Shane Brandy. Now, who's played Brandy here? Is anyone? Yeah? I, I still remember that. You got, this is showing my age, but the comedy company. Do you remember that? Colin Carpenter, you know, remember he used to talk about chalkball? That was so funny. They played this game called chalkball. He said it was because that was the sound of wet tennis ball maybe and it hit you in the head. <laughs> Shane Brandy. This is what um, Adam and Eve actually play. Uh, God says, who told you that you were naked? In uh, chapter 3, 11 and 12. Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Shame, Brandy. Let me tell you, I'll just educate you for a minute. There's two general ways to play Brandy, okay? And I think that Adam thought he was playing one when he was actually playing the other one. Let me tell you what the two ways are. The first way to play Brandy is you use a tennis ball and you throw it at someone and if it hits them, they're in and you're not in anymore. That's what I thought, that's what I think Adam thought he was playing. He was playing Shane Brandy where if he could just pin it on someone, he, uh, he wasn't it anymore. The second way of playing uh, brandy is that if you hit someone with the ball, it's kind of like build-ups, where they're in with you now. That's the kind of shame brandy that Adam was actually playing when he thought he was playing the first one. Does that make sense? And I think we actually play that game quite a bit ourselves, where we think, I'm playing the shame brandy where if I can just hit you with it, I'm off the hook. When in reality, what's actually happened is we've just built a team of shameful people. So let me throw a few ideas around here for you. What about this one? If only my wife would have sex with me more often, I wouldn't look at porn. I don't have time to exercise because I need to be dedicated to my family. And to some extent, uh, what I mentioned before about parenting, if you had my kids... And that's Shane Brandy, isn't it? Let's pin it on them. My fail- I don't have to deal with my failures. And what about this one? When jokes... Ever been in a group where the jokes go too far and they start to get personal and it doesn't stop? People just get more and more personal and more and more shame kind of comes out? Shane Brandy. It's like if I can just... And what happens is it's that second kind of Shane Brandy, not the first kind, but we think it's the first kind. And I mean, yeah, historically, you can look at Hitler, can't you? The whole problem with Germany was the Jews. So we've just got to exterminate the Jews and we'll be right. The whole problem was Hitler was a tyrant and a sinner and he got carried away with a whole bunch of other people. And the beautiful thing about it is this, is Jesus, rather than trying to throw the shame to someone else, was a shame magnet. 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin, 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, did you notice that? I mean, imagine if in those times where the jokes are getting out of control, that last line actually came into play. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. I mean, Jesus was incredibly silent. I mean, Isaiah talks about how as a sheep is silent before its shearers, so was Jesus. He's not plain shame branding. I mean, the only time that he really talks in his whole trial and everything is when the high priest commands him to talk and he had to by the Old Testament law. I mean, he says some other small things, but that's the only significant time where he says anything. He doesn't play shame brandy. He becomes the shame magnet. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He was a shame magnet. And you know what? You can stick your head out and it's okay to come out. Because he took it all. Because he took it all. There's a magnificent scene in uh, the Passion of the Christ, toward the end of the Passion of the Christ, where Jesus is carrying a cross and his, his, his mother Mary is watching him and he stumbles and he falls. When he stumbles and falls, she runs to him and there's this, this crossover between scenes of where he fell as a toddler and she ran to, to help him. And in this case, he's carrying the cross and he's got blood and he's, he's got the crown of thorns and he runs, she runs to him to help him. And you just think about all the emotions in that portrayal of it that would be running through Mary's head and the things that she would want to say to Jesus. And Jesus says this beautiful, beautiful thing. He says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And it's kind of the complete reverse of what you would expect. Mum, help me. But he's on a completely different agenda. He's on a completely different agenda so that those that are filled with shame will be made new again. They'll be made clean and they'll be helped. 